0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Inspired Attorney. I'm your host, Sharon V. In this episode, we are speaking with Debbie Hoffman. In part one, Debbie talks to us about her journey as an attorney, which started in real estate finance, led to her being general counsel of a technology startup, to where now she is an entrepreneur and CEO of a blockchain advisory company. She also talks to us about her love of teaching and how she got into it. Hello, Debbie. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Attorney.
1: Good morning. Great to see you, Sharon.
0: So, can you please introduce
1: yourself? Sure. My name is Debbie Hoffman. I am the CEO and founder of Symmetry Blockchain Advisors, and I'm also a visiting professor at Barry Law.
0: Very cool. How did you come to be an attorney?
1: Well, I come from a family of attorneys. My mother, father and sister are all attorneys. And so we used to joke around that um, we talked law at the dinner table. And so the only way to understand our dinner table conversation was to go into law. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think it was just, you know, natural for me to go into law.
0: That's awesome. And so how did you decide to get into the area of law that you started in? Because I think you started in real estate, right?
1: Real estate finance. Yes. So I was very, actually was a psychology major in college and I was very interested in senior citizens. And for a while I thought I wanted to be a social worker in the area of of elder, of the elderly. And so when I went to law school, I thought I wanted to do elder law and I wrote for the law review, a, um, my um, paper was on reverse mortgages, which is a way that senior citizens can basically take the equity from their home and live on it, and they never have to um, leave their house. So I spent a year writing this paper on reverse mortgages because of my interest in elder law, really. And out of law school, my first job was at a real estate firm that picked up the paper they did a lot of different things. They did trust in the States and some elder law, but they really picked up the paper and said, Oh, she knows real estate finance. And this would be a great area because we do real estate. So I I spent a year at that firm, but really that paper took me to my next job, which was a, a, a wall street firm that really focused on real estate finance. So it's really interesting how sometimes your career gets a little diverted from something you do, not really with that intention. And I've been in real estate finance ever since.
0: That's really cool. So, this job <laughs> that you were talking about, was that your GC job or how did you, you know, get on so being a general counsel?
1: Yeah, so I spent a decade at that Wall Street firm in, uh, representing lenders in real estate finance. So, in loan originations on the commercial side, mostly investment um, banks and some smaller banks and doing syndications. And it was all on the commercial real estate finance side. I left there actually to become a a professor for a little while. And we could talk about that as well. And so I was a professor for a few years at the University of Central Florida. And then after that, well, kind of during that, um, there was a very interesting company in Orlando called Digital Risk. And they, it was 2010, they had never had a GC before. It was an entrepreneurial company. So they, they really found me and asked me to be their first GC. And from kind of there, the company just grew incredibly large. And I don't know, at one point, I think more than quadrupled its size at that time. And then in 2013, it sold to an international company and um, really kind of, again, my career just grew from there.
0: So what was it like, the transition for you?
1: Transition in terms of which part of that?
0: (laughs) Into the role of general counsel and then growing with the company.
1: Yeah. So being a general counsel is a really fascinating part of an attorney's life. It's not for everybody. At that point, I had worked for a big firm and I had worked as a professor. So I was used to training students and taking on large projects. What I was not used to was all the different hats that a GC wears. You have to be first and foremost a business attorney. You have to make business decisions on behalf of your client. And you also have a stake in the client. So you learn very quickly. As an outside counsel, it's a lot easier to say no. When you're a GC, you know that what you say can affect the lifeline of the company. So you really have to understand why Why would I say no and is there any other way that we could do this that might be pushed the law in a different direction? Is there any way that we you know can look at this? So you really look to be creative in a way that you, and I'm not saying that outside counsel don't do that, but you really are pushed to your limits to do that for sure. Because what ends up happening is if you say no all the time in a large company, people just look at you as the strict lawyer nobody wants to interact with, who can't figure out how to get deals done. So you really have to be able to, to learn that, that business thinking. Another thing is you have to learn a little bit about every kind of be a, a general practitioner. You have to know about employment law. Every you know it, That was the biggest um, change for me. I'd been a real estate finance attorney for a decade. And all of a sudden, these workers' comp issues would come to me or some question about some employee. And you really have to partner with the HR and grow with them and be proactive and then there's so many other areas that you you grow into as a gc so learning about, about cyber law um intellectual property looking at the company's website and are we um you know compliant with ADA and things that you just you, you're like oh I took a class in that in law school but all of a sudden it's real life so you wear a lot of different hats and that's what makes it so much fun and fascinating you definitely have to know when when to call outside counsel. When am I just at the point where, you know, this is too risky for me me to make a call on? I've done all the research I can do on it, and we might need to spend a little money, but we really need an outside opinion on this. So you also have to make those calls too, and you obviously don't want to make those calls, spending money unless you really have to.
0: How did you handle those moments where you're in an area of law that was really new to you, and it's one of those situations where you ha- you're you're standing there for your company and you have to wear that hat. And you know that you have to make, you either have to make the decision of hiring outside counsel, or you harness the confidence to say, I can do this.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right on the confidence part. So there's a few things. You don't want to be overly confident, but everybody thinks the lawyer knows something about everything. And you don't want to be like, oh, I don't know that. So you, you do a lot of research. And one of the things about, I think most lawyers would say this is that you learn not to be afraid of the unknown. You learn to say, let me look into that and how to do the research and how to figure out what might be the answer. What are some options? Now you can do that. A lot of it you can do yourself, but there's also at a company, it's interesting. Sometimes there are other resources. There are other people in the company that may have expertise in a some part of it that you need to know, let's say I was in mortgage, some part of the mortgage process, the residential process, I might not have understood. How does this form work? Who signs it? Does the borrower sign it? And then it goes to the lender directly. You know, you have to make sure you understand the business. You might call a colleague and let's say it's an HR issue. Who's another GC and say, have you ever dealt with this issue before? You might look up on, um, you know, ACC or other websites. You know, they, there's a lot of resources that you can use for, other GCs who have been through this before. If you're lucky, you might have a staff. I was lucky. I did have a a bunch of attorneys that worked with me. Now they were very junior level attorneys. We did not have that many seniors when we first started, but that doesn't mean you can't completely um, trust their opinions and they do research and you have discussions and you go back and forth. So what my method would be to learn as much as I can, and then So for instance, if it's a tax issue, we could learn what we could, but we knew that ultimately we wouldn't know the tax law implication to its fullest extent. So when you call the outside counsel, you're armed with knowing enough to be dangerous and knowing when they start telling you the beginning of the information, you can say, I I get that, but there might be nuggets that you didn't get. And you then, when it happens again, you've learned from them. You've already had some expert advice. So you already grew from that experience.
0: Is there anything you wish you would have known before you went into that position? In that the one thing I
1: would tell most lawyers and most people looking and going into a GC is it's the finance background that I was always sorry that I didn't have a stronger finance background. I'm a, I was a psychology major in undergrad. But when you become a GC, you really have to understand budgets and finance. And the reason is because, so for instance, if you have a potential threatens litigation, what's that going to cost the company? There's a line of business that they're asking you to evaluate, and they're telling you what that could mean for the bottom line of the company. You have to be able to understand the financial implications of your decision-making. And if you're lucky, I was very lucky to be involved in the executive decision-making. You are part of the the finance committee. And so when spreadsheets are going around, you have to really be able to read those. So I, at the beginning, I can definitely say I struggled a little bit. I got stronger. I still think that it's just something that if I could go back, I would make it a concerted effort to really be a stronger finance partner as a, as a GC.
0: How would somebody go about doing that without going to college for that degree?
1: Just the same way I'm telling you about doing research. So there are a number of online courses for, you can start with, Courses for lawyer CLE. There's a number of them. I've noticed them, you know, now. And there's also just three day crash courses you can take. Or if you want to get a, you know, an executive degree, you can go and do that, of course. But there's just so much opportunity for education now that you know Coursera or your alumni association or that it it really don't you you shouldn't say just because I graduated from law school I can't learn finance. And so yes, that that's what I would recommend is go back and, and take a few if you haven't had. If you haven't been exposed to it in your job, then it's a really good idea to to have to expose yourself to it on your own.
0: I think that's awesome feedback. Now we're going to transition a little bit because what you're doing now seems yes. totally different. So can you mm-hmm. talk to us first, introduce the concept of blockchain for those who don't know it, and then tell us about how you came to create your company?
1: Yes. So I had a long career in law, as I've talked about, but obviously I have this business passion and the growth of business and the business side of, of um, companies. So when I founded Symmetry Blockchain Advisors, I didn't start a law firm. I started an advisory company because I wanted to be able to help my clients with strategic growth and not just the limited aspects of, of law of the company. And I became passionate about what technology advancement could do for company operations. But that being said, with the law background, I was also able to help companies identify, wow, you need a lawyer in IP or you need a lawyer um, in um, securities. And so what's fascinating about blockchain too, is that it's not just one area of law that it touches upon. And so one of the things I'm able to do is help identify the legal needs that the company has. And it might just be as simple as they need corporate formation. They don't have a business org attorney, but as an advisor, you can kind of put together all those pieces. It's not just one, one type of law or one type of business.
0: Can you explain what
1: blockchain is? Yeah, I'll do my best in a a quick, um, (laughs) so I do a lot of, I do a lot of speaking on this. And the reason I do speaking is because people are daunted by it because they you know they think it's this technology and I'm never going to understand this technology and I tell business people you don't have to understand every aspect of the technology do you understand the way we're speaking right now how does how is our internet working no you know that it's working so you really should understand the properties about it and why it is different from what other technologies that we have today. But let me, I will try and give you a little bit of of a background about it. It's technology that was originally used by Bitcoin, and that is the electronic cash system. So people equate blockchain with cryptocurrency, but really what it is, it's the technology on which cryptocurrency are built. But that doesn't mean that it can't be used for other types of Efforts. It's just that that's how people know of it. So it's the technology on which Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are built. It's a digital ledger system. And what it means is every everything that's done on this digital ledger, um, or if you want to think about it, if we're, we're lawyers, so you might want to think about it as almost like a Word document or an Excel document, but it's, it's a little bit fancier than that. But everything you do on that Word document is put onto a, a, a system that's recorded and so there's a time and date stamp. So you can always know when it was put on there and it can be shared. Now the way we share documents today in word for the most part, although there's drives and things it's in the cloud. So it has similarities to that because it can be, sh- it's one document. It's not a copy of a, of a document. It's not a, so it's recorded and shared and which, which means that if I put um, today is Tuesday onto a ledger, and I want to share it with you, Sharon. I send you today, I send you a copy on Word and you open it up. Or I mean on Google Drive. The idea is that I put it on this ledger and you can access it, the same original document, not a copy of the document, the actual document. So it's recorded on the document and it's shared. And let me give you some of the properties of blockchain that make it unique, unique. The way it's stored is not on one central server or a backup server, the way technology is today. It's stored on a bunch of different computers and they can be across the world they could be across the country you it's developed how the technology developed however there's a lot of different blockchains so however the blockchain is developed if you can have a 100 computers or a 100 or three computers that's called a blockchain and each computer is basically we refer to them as nodes so the 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 way blockchain is stored is not on one server, but on these nodes. Okay. That's number one. They call that a decentralized uh, storage system. It's time and date stamp. We talked about that. It's permanent. So everything you put on that blockchain stays permanently and it cannot get erased. And that means, so if I put on that ledger today is, what did I say? Tuesday. And then um, I put on that ledger tomorrow is Wednesday. You cannot erase today is Tuesday once I put in tomorrow's Wednesday, you can, it's very, very, very difficult. It's and so that's basically we call it permanency. It's harder to hack, because I just told you there, it's stored not on one server, remember, but let's say there's 100 servers. In order to hack a blockchain, you have to have 51 computers, they call the 51% of that 100, let's say, servers. So that's a much harder, higher bar to hack. I talked about it's a real time deposit, it's not a copy, it's real. And The last property, I mean, there's so many things, but I'm trying to nutshell this for everyone to summarize it, is that you can add something of value to this blockchain. Meaning um, it's a um, if you want to pay in a supply chain, you're putting today is Tuesday, tomorrow is Wednesday, I will deliver on Thursday, but you can also transfer not just information, but transfer money of sorts so that it's a ledger and a currency at the exact same time. I mean, wow. we can get into it a lot. There's just so much, but that's, that's a nutshell of it.
0: Why is this something that attorneys should be aware of and is something that law firms should integrate?
1: So if you think about the properties of blockchain, real time, difficult to hack, time and date stamp. As an attorney, think about all the things we do where you need to know when was that recorded? Who put that in there? Is it possible it was changed or erased? And if so, when? All of these properties are things that we might use in um, discovery, things we might use in audits. I got interested in it because I did a lot of real estate finance audits. We had, the company I worked for that I talked about earlier, ha- ha- was licensed in 48 states. At any one time, we could have a state come in and say, hey, we're going to come in in two weeks to audit you. And so I would have to in my team would have to get together all the files, make sure our ducks in a row and recreate, make sure that we had everything for the auditor to see. If something is stored on a blockchain, you don't have to recreate anything. You can give the auditor access to certain parts of it. You don't even have to give the whole thing. You can, you know, you're trusted knowing it's, it's permanence that wasn't erased. It can have the property of showing who put this in and when You don't have to try and figure that out. So there's just a lot of characteristics about a blockchain that are beneficial to law firms and to businesses, depending on how you want to use it. And that's one of the things I advise about.
0: Are there ways to, for example, make sure, because if you're dealing with like a general e-discovery request and you have like a first level review, you want to make sure that no privilege goes out the door. Does blockchain also have ways to make sure that certain content is held back?
1: Yes. Yeah. A lot, a lot of people ask me that question. Um, And especially it also kind of goes with the GDPR question, like how do you destroy things? So there are things that are appropriate to store on a blockchain and I'll start with this. And there are things that are not appropriate to store on a blockchain Um, as far as releasing information. Yes. There's, so there's different types of blockchains. I didn't talk about that. There's um, public blockchains, which anybody can have access to and full access there's private blockchains, and the true blockchain aficionados would say, Oh, that's not really a blockchain because there's their private means there's just very somebody controls access. And there's permissioned or semi, I guess I would call them semi private, semi public types of blockchains. And that's what we're talking about in business. Because in, in those, you are giving an auditor, or in in your terms, you are giving the courts or the other side and discovery. Um, limited access to what they need to see, and you're kind of opening doors to certain information, but you're not exposing the entire blockchain. So a lot of it depends on the way it's built. Uh, not you know, like I said, there's actually thousands of blockchains, and so when when you're building it, or when you're working with a partner who already has one, you want to make sure that you're bu- you're you're building in those access points correctly.
0: How would you advise someone to go about even starting this process? So there's,
1: there's three things. And this is what one of my companies does. Usually you're Usually a CTO knows about this. There's no question or CIOs. They are aware of the properties that I'm telling you about. What the bottleneck right now in business is that the executives and the decision makers are not aware of it in a way that they say, oh, I can use this for business. So I start with education just like this. Oh, wow. This is, this is a new type of technology. I haven't heard about it. So there's so many, once you start digging a little deeper in learning about blockchain, there's you just there's some people that are just completely intrigued by what it can do for their businesses so the business executives that understand the power of it and can kind of have the vision of where it could take their business business to the next level what they end up doing is first of all they edu- i call it executive education they learn about it second of all they find strategic partners so i for instance i had a company yesterday call me They're a title company, title agency they're doing a blockchain endeavor i was able to put the, this person in touch with another title agency that's doing it, with another industry player. I don't want to give away too much, but industry player that's working on a blockchain. And you can kind of form your little sandboxes and what we, sometimes they call them consortiums or, and you can have little test cases of where you can use it in your business. And so, you know, in my, in my business, I help people make the connections, but there are ways, once you start digging into it, it's just like any other project you do in business. You trying to figure out where am I, Where's my opportunity and who are my partners?
0: So do you know of small law firms taking advantage of blockchain?
1: Yes. So there, um, there actually is a consortium of law firms that has gotten together to, there's one central player that I'm thinking of who has gotten a consortium of law firms together and each has, have pledged to be a member of this organization and work on a sandbox project and report back to each other. So there actually is at least one organization that I can think of that has gotten this law firms to do it and to talk. And so I think the main thing is you need to talk with your partners. And most of those law firms are, obviously, they have some innovation to them. They they understand it. They understand what it can do for them. But by being part of a larger group that's working on these efforts, they can get the benefit of having these discussions on, well, what are you How are you using it, and what are you doing? And so, yes, that's definitely out there.
0: I think that's a greater also lesson in life is that it really helps you to be open to speak with other people and learn from one another.
1: Yes, and not be afraid. I mean, so the law firms that are in this, it's all over the country are they, I mean, you can't be afraid of the competition because you're never going to learn. Yesterday I actually said that to so the, the title agency I was talking to. I said, Hey, I'm going to put you in touch with another title agent. You know, I don't know if you're worried about competition. It's not. And he's like, no, not at all. I want to talk to them. I want to figure out what they're doing. Now there are two different ends of the country, but law firms are, we're, we're all over the nation and there's, you know, I think they can really help each other.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. Now I want to touch on what was it like for you switching to creating your own company, because oftentimes as lawyers, I mean, you've had a little bit of a different path, but oftentimes as lawyers, we feel like we need to be a lawyer and stay a lawyer because we got that degree. So yeah. were there, was there any hesitation on your end and how, how did you deal with that?
1: I love that question because when I started my company a few years ago, I fought against the law the lawyer in me. Every time I'd have a conversation and people would refer to me as a lawyer, I would say, I am a lawyer, but that's not how I'm advising you. I would say I have the legal background. And it's really hard to break out of the mold of constantly being seen as a lawyer. It can work to your advantage. Of course people respect lawyers, but it's really frustrating sometimes because they would ask me legal advice and I'm not here to give legal advice. I'm giving business advisory advice. And while I can see legal issues, I know where to direct. So it's really hard. Now, three years later, I can tell you, I've made a lot of progress to the point where now, when I have conversations, people say, Oh, you're a blockchain expert. And it's almost like I'm now almost like offended, like, well, I'm a lawyer too, you know, but no, <laughs> I, you can't you can, you can have what I've learned is, if you're not in the legal field, it's be comfortable with I'm a business person with a legal background. And that's is, it's a great place to be because you can see the legal issues and you can help solve them, but you're not doing all of the legal drafting. You can, you can help advise, but you, it's like this, this careful area you have to plan because if you're not, I'm not licensed to be an attorney and that's not my role when I'm an advisor to companies. And I try to remind companies of that. Sometimes they forget. Um, There's a few that keep saying to me, we know you're not giving legal advice, but can you look at these contracts? And you're just like, oh my, like, it's really, really frustrating, but, but you know, they know you have a legal background. So
0: I think that's really good advice because going to law school just gives you so many tools that it just opens so many doors. So I I personally think that we should use it to our advantage and not feel like we're bound to sit in that role forever.
1: Absolutely. And it's not for like I said, at the beginning, being a GC or business person, it's not for everybody. There are plenty of lawyers that really enjoy the purely contractual or intellectual property aspect of what they do. And they don't want to make the business decisions. They're not geared that way, trained that way. So it's just, it depends on what type of person you are, for sure.
0: Yeah, that's what makes that's what makes it all so great because what my strength is is somebody else's weakness and the other way around.
1: Absolutely. Yes.
0: So, can you tell us about how you got into teaching?
1: Sure. So again, that's sort of an evolutionary story, a lot like the way I talked about reverse mortgages. I was working at that large law firm for a decade and we worked on large commercial portfolio deals. And um, as I became a senior um, associate at the firm, we would get these deals that were like 400 property deals, which means you have to do due diligence on 400 properties and have a team of junior level associates working on them and overseeing all, you know, there's a lot that goes into that titles and surveys. And uh, sometimes, you know, so uh, they, I would find myself in this position where I'd be putting in the lead, leading those junior level associates on those teams and it's a big job because you have to go through every property, think about 400 properties and make sure that your teams are properly reviewing all of the properties. That you're not missing something. I mean, there could be a huge, what if there's an environmental issue you miss or something like that? Um At the same time, you're, you know, you're working loan documents with the usually it would structure with a partner. We're doing loan documents. You'd be the second to work on those loan documents. So it was a fantastic learning opportunity, but what I got from being the lead lead on those large level portfolio deals was that I really enjoyed working with the junior associates and the summer associates too, just teaching the summer associates from scratch as to what is a survey and what is title. And of course, bringing it up to the, the higher levels. So I realized I was like, I love teaching. I just get this like like excitement when I teach. And so when I, I was very lucky, I, I actually looked for a few positions and I was offered the position at the University of Central Florida and I left my Wall Street firm after a decade to go become a professor in, in Florida. And I was living in New York at the time. And I remember people saying to me, like, wow, like you're getting off the hamster wheel because who leaves that job? And, I mean, I mean, I had a good life, and but I just knew I had this passion for teaching. And so I did. Ha- I did love it, and I'm doing it again now. But in life, you also have to grab opportunities. So... When I, when I got the job as the first GC of that other company, I also knew that to have the opportunity to start a company at an entrepreneurial stage that was planning eventually to grow and sell would only help my experience as a professor and a teacher. And I'm lucky in that I've been able to go back into being a professor But so I really do enjoy it, but I also enjoy business. So I kind of like have this, you know, two headed, I wear two hats.
0: What was it like for you going into, you know, your, your first teaching job? Were there things that you wish you had known before you started that, you know, no question.
1: And no question. I don't know if you have if you. um, want to give any more depth to that question, but um, from what I, what I'll tell you is it's a lot with technology and to, you know, today I'm a little, I'm almost a little embarrassed when I think about my first teaching job because I went in there and I like wrote on the whiteboard and I didn't really know much about presentations. And so I do remember the beginning was pretty antiquated in the style in which I taught. I think I got up to speed fairly quickly in fact, one of the things I even made myself do, this was, you have to understand, this was in 2007 is when I started to as a professor. And so I actually got a side job, I don't know a lot, of, I don't really talk about this much, at a college called Rasmussen, Rasmussen College teaching um, paralegals, legal writing. And one of the reasons I did that is because Rasmussen, it was completely online, I'm sure still is completely online. And in 2008, I decided if I'm going to do this thing right, I need to know how to be a better remote instructor as well. So in 2008, and the reason I should have been thinking about this a lot in the pandemic, I started to learn how to become a, a remote professor as well. And so again, looking back, I would say using technology um, and making sure, the second thing is making sure I was at the level of the student's understanding. A lot of times when you are t- teaching, you take for granted what you know, and you have to make sure that you are that you're not assuming certain things. And I know there were people in the classroom that would say, oh, I get that. Like that you're, this is so easy, but there's also, you have to make sure that you're grabbing everyone. So it's the various levels that you have to teach at. And so those those are the two things that come to mind. But what's true about the second is it's also extremely true in executive education. You can have a room where you have a CTO who knows all about blockchain and an executive who's never heard of it and you have to figure out at what level do I teach? So it's a common question that continues to this day that I have to, to figure out.
0: What I think is so cool about teaching, and a lot of people probably don't know this, is that I was in your class in 2007, <laughs> and you were a part of my journey. So as as a, like, before, my, before I even went to law school, and as a teacher, you have such an impact on people's lives that you don't even know that you have sometimes.
1: Right. And so it's one of the greatest pleasures. Sharon, honestly is when I think about 2007, so you were in the early classes and the fact, and I think about the people who have had an effect on starting from those junior level associates who a lot of them I still keep in touch with to the early classes that I taught. And I mean, you kind of remember every class in their own way and the people that you keep in touch with, and well, you may get to this in some of your questions, but it's the connections you're making as a professor are business connections years later, and you can't ever ignore that fact. The, the classmates you're meeting in your law school or college are your business, are your best business partners years later. And that's a lesson I have learned throughout life is, so it's, you cannot, you cannot look at your students as just students. These are people who you will be working with eventually. And and it's the most, the greatest feeling when you actually do work with former students, because you think about the impact that, wow, I had a little bit of an impact on them. And like you as a lawyer, um, you didn't look at me as in, hopefully as an instructor and say, Oh, that's what a lawyer is. Or there was another person in our class uh, that year and he ended up going into real estate finance, the commercial side. And I always think, and he's told me, I didn't know anything about structured finance until I took your class. And I know that he went into that because I talked about it and he got intrigued by it. And so those are the nuggets that as a professor, you just, you, there's nothing else like it. You're just, it's, it's you've made it, you've made an impact on somebody else.
0: I think that's amazing. What would you say to someone who is thinking about making that step, but is not sure if they should?
1: To become a professor or teacher? Yeah. There's a few ways you can do it. Um, You know, Like I said, I I learned to become a teacher in a law firm. So you actually can see, is this something? And and even as a GC, I had a team of junior level associates. I started an internship program at my company. We had 10 interns. So you can there's ways that you can learn to see if you like and have the patience to instruct others not everybody does i mean it's funny because i have two children and i can see the differences in them one has a passion and a patience for teaching and the other he's great at what he does but it's not his forte he doesn't really care to teach others so you have to first see if you if it's something that drives you moves you and so And then if you really want to get into teaching or being a professor, um, as a lawyer, there's obviously there can be opportunities for you to become an adjunct if you want to go that route. There's a lot of I'm a big fan of online opportunities. So there's listservs, as the professors have. And so I'm on a legal research and writing listserv where there's a lot of professors on there. And there's also practitioners on there, then they write, I want to become, I want to get into this area, how do I get into this area? And so there's a lot of professors on there that are giving advice. So you surround your, yourselves with the right networks to to eventually get in, but you can't be afraid of dipping your toes in by something like an adjunct or an, even what I did with Rasmussen. I dipped my toes into online and it was completely foreign to me at the time, but I figured it out and I learned. And when we went how to go fully remote last March, I mean, I had t- done other remote online since then, but i just, I wasn't afraid of it.
0: Thank you for watching. Would love to hear your key insights and takeaways. Also, please follow me on my various social channels, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. If you do follow me on YouTube, please make sure you hit the little bell so you do get notified when new content is released, such as part two of the conversation I shared with Debbie. As always, if you are seeking further strategic guidance, please utilize me as a resource or take advantage of the content that I've made available to you, such as further episodes of The Inspired Attorney, and tips and tricks on thinking above the line.